Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Word of God. It is a joy to us. It is bread and life to us. And we would be fed today. We open our spiritual ears. We open our spiritual eyes to hear and see the things of God. May our hearts be soft to receive. And I pray, Lord, for grace upon me to speak your Word faithfully. And Lord, to bring it in in your heart uh, with the love of God uh, as it's spoken. Come now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I have taught through the book of Revelation probably three times in the course of of my years. I study it on and off all the time. I'm always coming across stuff and and kind of watching things. So I thought I I was pretty well ready to go. And I thought here, you know, I'm excited to teach it again. I've got a a lot of fresh insight, I feel. And... and, uh, so I started, and I could not get past the first verse. And the Lord really humbled me. I, I had never seen something like I saw it in the first verse, and I got absolutely stumped. I'll tell you what it was. The Lord says, I'm coming soon. And he says it, uh, then in, in verse 3, he says, and the time is near. And then he says it again in, in, in uh, a number of places, but uh, at the very end, in chapter 22, he says, I'm coming quickly, and uh, I'm coming soon. Again, the same phrase. And I was just mortified because that was 2,000 years ago. And people deal with that different ways, don't they? They, they, they say, well, he's, he, soon but for God is, uh, I mean, a 1,000 years is like a day, and a day is like a 1,000 years. So it's soon for God. And I thought, well, fine, but next time he says, soon, I'm not jumping. <laughs> you know, if it's 2,000 years is soon, then whatever, you know, but I, I'm certainly not counting on soon. Uh, so, so if that's the answer, then it's kind of like, well, then don't take him seriously when he says soon. Other people say, well, you know, it means suddenly, that God was going to act suddenly. But then in verse 3, it says the time is near. There's just, he just can't fudge that way. I, I tried. Um, I, I, I was going with that. I was looking at the Greek for all I was worth, thinking, is there a loophole here? Uh, I, I really struggled. I mean, I had a thing where I could hardly get to sleep because I thought, wait a minute. The natural meaning of that language is that the Lord is saying, I'm, I'm coming soon. I'm going to do something soon. And you didn't. And I thought, I've heard, you know, what, what have I come across? What is this? Oh, Lord, help me. And he did. He did. He showed me something, and, and uh, what I really want to share with you today is we're going to look at the, we're, this is our introduction. We're starting our study of the book of Revelation, and you, you know enough to know that I have no idea how long it'll take. Um, you who've been three and a half years through the book of Luke, and two years through Genesis, and two years through Exodus, and whatever, uh, you, you know I don't know, and uh, but I don't intend to take two years, I can tell you that, but um, we'll see. What happens when you get in the books and you begin to really look at them carefully is you, you just find they're a treasure chest. 
They're just absolutely a treasure chest of riches. And, and, and you begin to get in it, and it's like, wow, I never saw that. And wow, I never saw that. And wow, I never saw that. That's the joy for me of preaching. The fact that you allow me to take serious amounts of my time to get into the Word of God and let that happen is, a, is, is the greatest gift I think I have. And I, I really appreciate it. So I want to share with you today, we're going to fly over Revelation at 30,000 feet. We're going to get the big picture today and just let God show us, why did he write this book? To whom did he write it? And what on earth did he mean by soon? I think we'll come away with a sense of, of how, how loving he is, how committed he is to his churches and to us today. And then we'll hear him call us to repentance and to have tender hearts so that we will shine brightly for him. Let's get into it. Start with the introduction. We often refer to Jesus as the head of the church, meaning that he continues to lead every generation of his followers just as he did his disciples during his earthly ministry. He never left, did he? He's still our head. He's still the boss. He's still our example. And when we open the book of Revelation, we are immediately confronted with this headship. We soon discover how directly he is involved with our lives. He knows exactly what's happening among his people, the good things and the bad. He stands among us to encourage us and even discipline us if necessary. In fact, these magnificent prophecies were originally given to encourage just seven young churches living in Asia Minor at the end of the first century. They were given to help them become overcomers. But thankfully, they have been preserved so we too might read and hear and heed the things, these things and be overcomers in our day. In the first three chapters, Jesus likens these seven churches to the menorah. You remember the seven-branched lampstand that Moses placed in the tabernacle. Just as those seven lamps lit the outer chamber, Jesus said these seven churches lit Asia with the truth of God. But their light had begun to dim, so the Lord himself was coming to personally inspect each one. Tribulation was also on the way for some. These letters dictated through John give an assessment of each church, warning them of their failings and urging them to repent. If they did not, a moment would arrive when Jesus' patience would end and he would reprove and discipline them. However, to put it in Paul's words, if they judged themselves rightly, they would not be judged. We're told that each letter would be assigned to an angel who would carry it to the prophets. That's the phrase, his bondservants, I'll show it to you later. Whom God had placed in each church. The, this role for angels is similar to what we see taking place with John himself. With Daniel, Zacharias, and of course, Mary, the Lord's mother. These prophets would then be expected to faithfully declare the content of the message until the people responded, hopefully sparing them the discipline the Lord himself would otherwise be forced to impose. In addition to his individual assessments beginning at chapter 4, Jesus reveals to these churches what human history looks like from God's perspective. This too is meant to help them, as well as all following generations, to be overcomers by realizing that they are part of a great spiritual battle, which ultimately culminates in Christ's return, the defeat of his enemies, and the inauguration of a new world. 
they will be strengthened in the face of persecution and temptation. Against the backdrop of eternity, it becomes obvious that the sufferings of this present age are nothing when compared to the reward he has in store for those who endure to the end. As we read this prophecy, who can doubt that Jesus still stands among us today? We too need to hear these words and evaluate ourselves, and we too need to see human history from God's perspective. Yes, so we can watch for the signs of the times, but even more importantly, so that we can keep our priorities in order and shine brightly in our generation, whether or not it be the last. Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to read you the whole chapter, <clears throat> and then the first verse of chapter 2. There are a number of, of, of references I'm not, I'm not going to comment on. I'll do it later. Uh, I mean, another time. I want you to see the big picture. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. When, when are they going to take place? Soon. Yeah, soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. Let's unpack that for a second. There's a line of transmission going on here. We start with God the Father. He gives the message to Jesus. Jesus gives the message to, no, no, an angel. He gives it to an angel, father to the son, son to an angel, angel to John, John to the bondservants, the prophets. Now I'm going to show you that uh, a little clearer, but that's who those bondservants are. So, yeah, we need a diagram. All right, so there it is. You've got that the father to the son, the son to an angel, the angel to John, and John to the, to the prophets, and then the prophets to the church. Who test now, who speaks of John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. All through the book of Revelation, you're going to see the father and the son. Of course, this is the passion of John. He's constantly showing us the divinity of Christ. And so he's going to say... The, testimony, the, the, the Word of God is this book, and it testifies of Jesus Christ. Even to all that he saw, blessed is he who reads, I'm already feeling better, and those who hear, are you feeling better? The words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it for what? Time is near, there it is again. Can't get away from it. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace, from him who is, and who was, and who is to come. This is the Father, eternal, eternally existent in the past, eternally existent in the future. And from the seven spirits. Yes, folks, I'm going to tell you what the seven spirits are. Who are before his throne. And no, it's not the number of completion. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. He's the, he's the first resurrected person of an entire new race of resurrected persons. How many are going to be part of, are, are already part of that race? Hallelujah. Isn't that lovely? And the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he's made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, and so it is to be. Amen. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. It's a small, rocky island off the western coast of Turkey. Uh, it was a prison island. He was imprisoned because they had tried to kill him and couldn't. He tried to boil him in oil, and he didn't boil. Just sat there like a warm bath, I gather. And there's a spot on my back if you get that. And he, so he's just sitting there, in the, in the, and it, they took him out and decided, you know, if guy wouldn't boil, I would just leave him alone. That, that's, I, I'm serious. I, that you'd put him on a prison island when you couldn't boil him. It's kind of amazing. I just sort of say, anybody that doesn't boil, you, can, you, you go away. Anyhow, he's on a prison island, and because of the word of God, that's what got him in trouble, is he declared the word of God and the testimony testified to the Son, Jesus Christ. And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw, what does he see? Seven golden lampstands. What does that remind you of? The menorah, of course. There isn't a Jew in the world that would read that and not think of menorah. It's absolutely what he's referring to. I see this seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Oh, here's, here's this glorious Jesus standing in the middle of his lampstands clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. So he's just, the light is radiating out of him like, like the sunlight. And his feet were like burnished bronze, mel molten metal. And when when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, the, the roar of, of waves on the beach or the crashing of, 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 of water going down uh, through rocks and cascades or waterfalls, that roaring sound that water will make like that. And in his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. No kidding. And he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. So the Father is and so is the Son. And the living one. And I was dead, in case there's any doubt in anyone's mind who's speaking. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and the grave, and I will open them and let you out. Hallelujah. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Important verse, I'll comment on it another time. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are what? Angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are? The seven churches. One more verse. And the angel of the Lord in Ephesus to the angel write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Let's observe some things. Number one, 
It's important for us to realize that we are listening to a letter written to seven churches. That's who the entire book was for. I say that because for, I guess almost all of my, my life, I somehow thought, I thought it was written for just the last generation. It kind of, God sort of got this prophecy out of John on, on, on the island of Patmos, and there it was, and it really, you know, it was full of mystery, and the last generation, they'd know what it all meant anyway. It's not so. It was meant for seven churches. Those seven churches in Western Asia Minor. You say, well, if it's their letters, what benefit is it for us? Well, you read Romans, don't you? That was theirs. You, you read Philippians, don't you? That was theirs. You read Timothy, don't you? That was his. But what's touching my heart is that Jesus would go to this effort for seven churches. He would give this depth of revelation, this profundity, this amazing explanation of the, of, of, of the final stage of human history. He would tell them all of this. He'd speak to them prophetically, one by one. And then he says, and by the way, let me tell you how it all ends. And he gives us the, the, the layout. I want to tell you right up front, I absolutely think that the, the, from chapter 4 on, tells us the final stage of human history more clearly than we want to know. It is not ambiguous. It is not ambiguous at all. It is quite clear. And so he gives all of this because he loves these seven churches. And how dearly he loves them touches my heart. He stands in the midst of them. They are, they are, they are his love. And I'll, I'll show you again how he describes them. Each generation must take heart what he said to them. It's as, it's as powerful and applicable to us today or to a church a thousand years ago at any point in history, the message is loud and clear. We all need to hear it. They needed to hear it. We need to hear it today. Are we the last generation? Who knows? I will say, awful lot of stuff <laughs> is starting to look like it. Now, we'll see that. It gets a little, little. Uh, one woman came up and said, I think this is going to be a squirmy ser series. And kind of where you squirm around and go, oh, I will try not to be... Uh, Overly, overly frightening. He warned them he was personally coming to inspect their condition. That's what was going to happen soon. I'll show you. He wasn't talking about his final coming. The thing that bothered me is all through when he explained it in the Gospels and elsewhere, he's always saying, here's all the things that have to happen before I come. And when you see those signs, you know it'll happen quickly. That generation won't pass away once it starts. But he gives wars and rumors of wars and all sorts of things. And, tell, and it's just this sense of quite a long time of history and then this stuff will happen. And then all of a sudden here it sounds like I'm coming now, saying it to the church in like 90 AD and he didn't come. 2,000 years later he's not here yet and I'm supposed to assume that's still soon. It isn't soon. Maybe it's soon to God but it ain't soon to us. He was warning them and I'm gonna, I'll show you this. He was warning them, per, he was personally coming to inspect their condition. They, he was coming in a visitation upon these churches because their light was dimming. Their light was dimming. And he says, I'm coming and I'm going to tell you through the prophets what I'm concerned about. Here's the good things I see in you. Here are the difficult, the bad things that need changing. That I, and he said, if you don't change them when I arrive, here's what I'll do and I'll show you that. 
and it isn't the last return. It's a disciplinary visitation. Follow me through this. He, chapter 2, verse 5, to the church at Ephesus. He says, Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and I'll remove your lampstand out of its place. I am going, I, I'm going to lift from you that revelational glory of the Holy Spirit. The anointing will leave you and you will be abandoned. Ichabod was the Old Testament phrase. But that isn't the final judgment. That's a disciplinary act. Chapter 2, verse 16. To the church at Pergamum. Therefore repent or else I'm coming to you quickly and I'll make war against them. Who's this? These people who are going into the idols, uh, worshiping idols, who are committing sexual acts, probably uh, temple prostitution. They're going into the temple prostitutes. He said, I'll make war with them with a sword of my mouth. I will speak and bring uh, a judgment on them. Chapter 2, verse 22. Church at Thyatira. Behold, he says, concerning a false prophetess who is leading people again into acts of immorality, probably encouraging them to go in, into the uh, pagan temples and partake. He says, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. That is not the final judgment. That's a disciplinary visitation. Do you see that? Chapter 2, verse 25. Nevertheless, hold fast until I come. Chapter 3, verse 3. Church of Sardis. So remember what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. I'm coming. Verse 11. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. Speaking to Philadelphia. And verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Does Jesus do this? Does he show up in a, in a visitation? And does he... Does he personally somehow come you see it numerous times uh, one example of it is is when he arrived with two angels with Abraham and Sarah you recall he was going to judge the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and he for some reason personally showed up with two angels and was going to examine the situation see come on he's, he's God he knows but he does yes he does but out of some sort of justice, mercy, I don't know. He was going to see for himself. And you remember Abraham bargained with him and said if there's, it came down to if there's ten righteous people, would you spare the city? And, and uh, the answer was yes. And there wasn't. There was one lot. Even his own family wasn't, wasn't righteous. And, and so the, the thing went up in flames. Um, you see it when Jesus inspects that fig tree that is a that's really a parable some people feel sorry for the fig tree well get over it uh, the he came up to a fig tree and it had leaves on it but no fruit and you need to know I have a fig tree right now with figs on it and the leaves come and the figs at the same time and so for a tree to have all these leaves and no figs it's a barren tree there's something wrong with the thing it's a symbol it's a parable he's coming to Israel and he's examining his people. The Messiah has arrived, actually right on time, literally to the day prophesied by Daniel. 
And he has arrived, and he's examining his people, and they're full of religious leaves. There is temples, there's priesthoods, there's sacrifices, there's all of this religious stuff. Fasting and tithing, and, but the heart. There's no love, there's no justice, there's no mercy, there's no purity. The, the real things that God cares about aren't there. The fruit aren't there. And so he curses the fig tree, and the next day it's shriveled and, and, and uh, withered. He has arrived in a visitation. You remember his comments over Jerusalem. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you under my wings like a, like a mother hen does her chicks, but you would not, for you did not know the hour of your visitation. You see it, Palm Sunday is another example. He comes riding in the triumphant but gentle Messiah, seated on a foal of a donkey, riding into his city, into his temple. He gets there and he goes into the temple and he looks around. And there are all of these people selling and buying in the court of the Gentiles, which was meant to be the evangelistic center of the temple, where all the Gentiles could come and hear of the true and living God of Israel. And they turned it into a marketplace. And he turns over the tables and he drives out the money changers and he says, get out of here. You've turned the house of God into a den of thieves. This is a place for the Gentiles to find, a house of prayer for all nations. That's a visitation. He was giving, he was saying to this church, I am telling you through the prophets what I find in you. Correct it before I'm forced to discipline you in a much more direct way. He also warned some that they would be facing more persecution. Uh, chapter 2, verse 10. There's an example. To, to Smyrna, he said, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death, for I will give you the crown of life. They must be faithful even if it meant losing their lives. Chapter 3, verse 10. To Philadelphia, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who who dwell on the earth. And indeed it was, for Domitian was the Roman emperor. And Domitian was a horrible man. Domitian had decided that the weakness of the Roman Empire at that time uh, was due to the fact that they weren't honoring their ancient gods. And so he put out a persecution. Everything in which everything else began, he, he, he butchered. Well, he got going on this thing and declared himself Dominus ex. Deus, Lord and God himself, and you were to worship him in the, in the mix. Seems like weirdos always go there, huh? Uh, he was so evil, so hideous. I mean, there was a, there was a, a coup rumor that went through, and he slaughtered half of the Senate, cleared out of the Roman Senate. Finally, his wife helped coup plotters, and they got him dead. And then proceeded, listen to this, the Roman Senate had his name ground out of all of the monuments in, in Rome. They wiped his name off the city. They hated that man that much. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> so, when Jesus says, you're about to go through a test, he ain't kidding. This is being written right then. 
John is probably writing about 90 A.D. Domitian was 80, 81 to 96. We're right in the, in the heat of the battle. He likened them. This is the beautiful picture. If you see this picture, it is absolutely gorgeous out of this first chapter. He says, you are, the seven churches are seven lampstands. You're, the, you're a menorah. Do you remember the menorah? If you don't, let me take you back to the two years that we went through Exodus. Please do. Yes, please. The, the tabernacle, that tent there in the wilderness. It had two chambers, remember that? There's a smaller chamber. It has one article of furniture which has two, two parts to it. What is the one article of furniture in that small, centri the, the most important chamber? It is the Ark of the Covenant, right. That's the only thing in that room. Then there is a larger room in, the, in, the, in that, the, the, the first chamber that you come into, and it has three articles of furniture in it. On the north side is a table. What has it got on the table? Showbread. There are 12 loaves for 12 tribes. It's, these are promises. This room is a promise room. The Lord says, I have provided a portion of bread for each of my children. Each tribe has their portion. You see that? When you need bread, come and ask me. On the south side of this chamber was the seven-branched lampstand and it looked like it was made like a tree kind of like the tree of life you had these great swinging arms uh, three of them and then the, the center making seven flat spots on the top where the lamps were placed it's what it's the only light in the tabernacle and on that each on the top of each is a is a golden bowl of the purest olive oil with a wick that's just aimed to the front to cast the light out and twice a day, the priests would clean those lamps, wiping all the, the uh, so, any soot, any, any things off that, and putting fresh, pure, the fresh, I get what we call the first squeezing of the olive oil, is put in fresh oil and cleaning the soot so that this thing would burn. Why seven? A creative cycle. One week. Seven days. There is light in this place 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The Lord says, do you need revelation? Do you need light? For man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, the revelation and light of the Holy Spirit. Do you need light? Do you need bread? Do you need resource? Do you need, do you need my counsel and guidance? And then you come to that, that little altar just before the, before the veil, it was 18 inches by 18 inches with a 30, feet, 30 inches high. And what did they do there? Burned incense, right. Which represents? Prayer, yes. The prayers would rise up before, before the Lord, right before the, the veil of the, uh, behind which was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Lord is saying, your prayers are sweet to me. Your prayers are sweet smelling. I love your prayers. See, they're, they're beautiful. Let them rise up to me. Do you need bread? Ask me. Do you need light? Ask me. I'm your heavenly father. Ask me and I'll give it to you. Isn't that beautiful? What a promise. Now, so the Lord says, I told you, I'd tell you what that, that seven spirits was. Maybe you're getting it. Verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4. From him who is and was and is to come and from the seven spirits. This, this, this menorah of God which are before his throne. 
the source of revelational light seven days a week, 24 hours a day, the Holy Spirit. From, from the Holy Spirit of God who is like the menorah in the, in the heavenly temple. Now, here's the beauty. Here's the remarkable thing. The Lord says, with that picture of the menorah in mind, the Lord says to these seven churches of Western Asia Minor, you are my menorah in Western Asia. You seven churches shine and light Western Asia as the menorah lit the holy place of the tabernacle. Do you see that? Only the menorah was lit simply by a little golden bowl of olive oil with a wick on the front. These, the, these lampstands shine with a brighter light than that. What do they shine with? A star. He's shining. He says, I got the seven stars in my hand. They, they come for me. And they're, they're the angels that I have sent with, this, with, this, with the revelation. And they, so that there you are in, in Western Asia. You churches, do you have any idea how important you are? You shine and bring the light of God to Western Asia. In the Old Testament, the menorah was placed in the holy place of the tabernacle. In the New Testament, the menorah of God is placed in the world. Do you see it? In the Old Testament, that menorah is there on the south side of the holy place, lighting the tabernacle of God. But there's a fence around this thing. I mean, there's a curtain. You don't come in. You just, you know, it's only the priests go into this. In the, in the New Covenant now, the menorah of God is in the world. He's placed his churches as light to the darkness. We are, we have a role. Now, do you suppose that's true today? Are we to be a light in our community? Are we to shine with that light of the truth of God in the darkness of our world? He sent his word by an angel to the prophets in each church. That's not a, that's not a novel idea. He's, he did it with Daniel. He did it with, I mean, you see it over and over again where the angels bring it. And I think to myself, well, wait a minute. The, isn't that the Holy Spirit's job? And of course, each, each letter says... Let the churches hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the message, of course, is coming from the Holy Spirit. But why an angel? I don't know. I can't tell you everything, okay? I don't, I, it, could, could, it be, could it be that they are there to protect us and, and guard over us as we hear this word, to keep the enemy from us? I mean, you see it in Daniel where he had to fight to get there. Is he pushing back the darkness and the confusion? I don't know how it works. I, but I'm grateful. Could there be an angel here today with us? Hallelujah. They are so welcome. And the angels, you'll notice, the angel brings the word, and I want you to see this, to the bondservants. And the bondservants means the prophets of God. How do I know that? Chapter 22. Look at it. Revelation chapter 22. Verse 6, this is called the epilogue. This magnificent revelation of the end of history has, has come uh, to a completion uh, with a picture of the new Jerusalem and the glory of God and the new heaven and new earth that we'll part, be part of. And then it says in verse 6, And he said to me, who's that? The angel, who's bringing this very revelation to John that we're reading. He said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of 
the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants, the prophets, the things which must soon take place. Notice the soon again. I could not get away from that. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of this uh, prophecy of this book. Then, it, then he, John wants to fall down and worship this being. And he said, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And, and, and the angel said, stop it. Don't do that. Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the, this book because the time is near. Now, the transmission is that there is a, the Lord sends, is sending these words through John, but through an angel, to the prophets of the churches who are to hear the message and are to then declare the word of the Lord to that congregation until that congregation re repents. And see, the priest of the, is coming to clean the bowls of the lampstand, to wipe the soot off and to pour in fresh oil. He's come to make the churches shine bright for their, their light is dimming. And he's, come, he's coming to clean the bowls if they do not clean themselves through repentance. Now at chapter 4, the Lord takes John right up into heaven. And he begins to see all of the end of history and actually seeing really the whole of human history from a spiritual perspective. How does this help? the seven churches. These churches are about to face some pretty rugged persecution. There is, there is spiritual discipline needed and repentance needed in moral issues for them. And the Lord says now, I'm, and he prophesies and he says repent. And then he says, let me show you what human history looks like from my perspective. And he shows us the forces that are at work. And then he shows us the, the judgment that comes. He shows us the doom of those who follow Satan to his destruction. He shows us the glory of the new heaven and the new earth and what's waiting for us. And he says, in light of that, in light of that, isn't it worth it to say no to temptation? Isn't it worth it to repent and walk cleanly before me, given what I have waiting for you? In light of, in light of that eternity, can, could you love not your life unto death? Even if it meant dying for me, considering the eternity of glory that I have waiting for you, could you do that? He's strengthening these seven churches and every church from that period on who reads it. And certainly the church of the last generation. As faithful followers of Jesus Christ, Northwest Church has also been called to be a light to our community. And now we're going to just apply it to us for a second. We too must earnestly desire to hear the Lord's correction so that our light will shine brightly. Will he still say, I want you to repent? Northwest Church, here's the things you do well. Here's things that are weak. I want these things strengthened and changed. We too must keep God's perspective always before us. Our blessed hope, it's called in the New Testament, so that we will endure persecution bravely.
the call here over and over again is, is to repent. Repentance is something that comes easily to true Christians. It's the way we began our new life. I want to make a distinction here. See, Jesus Christ, the way he deals with us, makes it possible for us to repent, not only the first time, but over and over again freely. We almost repent joyfully. It's sort of like, God, whatever you see here, let's clean her out. And here's why. The Lord teaches us to be a guilt culture. Say amen. You're going to like it when you hear this. We live in a guilt culture. Now, the alternative is a shame culture. And the world, apart from Christ, basically lives in a shame culture. A shame culture is this. When you fail, you're a failure. You, you, you know, because that's how those folks are. People like you are all like that. That's shame. When people are talking to you like that, they're giving you shame. They're saying, people like you do stuff like that, don't you? And the, the message is, you're that way to the core. That's what you are. You ought to be ashamed. So, if, I, if I've been brought up in a shame culture, and you confront me with my failure, i got to fight you like crazy. Because if you prove me wrong, if you prove that I've made some, done something stupid, I'm worthless. Do you know people like that? If you confront them with anything they've done wrong, they're either going to deny it, Going, you've got to be, oh, I've never thought that. I never, oh, what, are you, what are you saying? So you're, the, you're stupid for even thinking this. Or they blame, wait a minute, it's not my fault, it's my mother's fault. Or it's her fault or his fault. I'm a victim. See, because if I'm not, I'm junk. Or they rage at you. Who are you to talk to me? You're as bad as I've ever hoped to be. Bang, 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 bang. We live in that junk all the time, don't we? America has, is now post-Christian, and it is profoundly shame-based now. That's why this, the lying, the denial, the constant victimization is because we have lost the blessing of guilt. See, the Bible teaches guilt. The Bible says, I now have become redeemed in Christ but I still do bad stuff, but what I do isn't who I am. The Bible separates the sin from the sinner. So that when God comes and says, Stephen, you did it again, I can go, yep, I did it again. And I'm still a child of God. I am loved and I am full of the Holy Spirit, but I have done that and I need to apologize for it, repent. I've gotten caught again into, the, into the following the flesh or, 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 or believing something stupid. I got to repent of it, but I can just cleanse it out. And so for us, it's like house cleaning. We sweep out the dirt and the trash. We throw out the garbage, but it's not us. Are you following me? We are a guilt culture. What we do is wrong, not who we are. A shame culture can't admit because if you, if you prove that I've done something stupid, I am worthless as a person. Jesus comes to these churches. And he says, this is what I got against you. 
But here's what, I, here's what I see that's good. He always starts with the good. It's really beautiful. Here's the things I see that are good in you. But here's the things I want changed because your lamp's dimming. I mean, I'd be, would, I wouldn't even bothered with the good when, they, when they're having immorality with, you know, going to temple prostitutes and <laughs> this stuff. I'd have just bang. But I'm not God and aren't we grateful? <laughs> Jesus starts with this, with this explanation. Here are the good things I see. But here's the things I want changed. Because I love you. And I want to I give you the morning star. I want to give you a white stone. I'll tell you what that means later. I want to I I give you a new name that only the Father and I know. So just repent. Throw the garbage out. I love you. So as we walk with him, we will be a people who repent quickly, easily, and often. It becomes easy for me to say, I'm sorry, you're right, I was wrong. And to give mercy to each other, and that was the, the prophetic word earlier, that we would give such mercy to one another. We would treat each other on the issues of guilt. That was wrong, but I love you. Rather than, you people, you're all like that. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.